This is KMTT, and today is Thursday. Every Thursday, Shiur in the Megillot, and now Dr. Yael Ziegler, who will be giving the Shiur in Megillat Rut. Welcome to our third Shiur in our series on Megillat Rut. Um, today I would like to talk about some of the connections between Megillat Rut and several of the stories in Sefer Breshit. Um, as we know, many of the stories in Tanakh have their roots in Sefer Bereshit, and um, our Megillah is no exception to this rule. I'd like to begin, though, with a question based on Chazal's reading of one particular character in Megillah root, and that is our minor character, Orpah. Orpah, of course, is the other Moavite woman that uh, that one of Elimelech's sons marry. In fact, from the very beginning of the story, it is unclear who marries whom, whether Machlon married Ruth or Machlon married Orpah. It's not clear. We simply have this description of two young men who marry these two young, or the, these two Moavite women, and it is only clear from the last parak of Megillat Ruth, in fact, who marries whom. This simply tells us that the the two men at this point, the two women at this point, appear to be indistinguishable one from the other. In fact, we are introduced to these two young women, Shem Ha'echat Orpah V'Shem Ha'Shenit Ruth, right? One of them's name is Orpah, and the other one's name is Ruth. And in fact, our senses in the the beginning of the story, that Ruth and Orpah are basically mere images. They are indistinguishable one from the other. They speak in one voice. They do the same actions. Naomi convinces both of them, or attempts to convince both of them not to accompany, accompany her. And um, it is only, finally, in Pasuk Yudalid that they do something different. Until now, all of the verbs have been plural verbs. Vatisena kolan, vativkena, they lift up their voices, they cry, vatomarna, and they speak together. Right? It's only in verse 14 that we're told Vatishak or Pa Lachamota Virut Dovka Ba. And Orpa kisses her mother-in-law and Ruth cleaves to her. Um, the reason that Orpah goes back to Moab and chooses to not to accompany Naomi back to Beit Lechem seems to be very simple. I mean, after all, Naomi has exerted a very strenuous effort in order to convince these women that they have no future in Beit Lechem. She tells them, even if I had sons uh, uh, tonight, she said, I have no sons to give you as husbands. And even if I would be able to have sons tonight, are you going to wait around until they grow up, until you can marry them, and then hope to have children? It's not a good idea. You should go home, start a family, have a future. Or Pa um, agrees to return to Moab in order to find a new husband and start a family. Ruth really acts in an exceptional manner and rejects the possibility of her own future in order to stay with her mother-in-law. Now, while I, I believe certainly all of us admire Ruth for her actions, and we spoke about this a little bit in the first class, her actions are um, somewhat incomprehensible, and certainly Orpah's choice appears to be justifiable, understandable. What is at stake here is her entire future. And Naomi has really expended considerable effort trying to convince both girls not to accompany her. Um, it seems to be a very high price to pay for staying with Naomi, the not having a husband, not having children, not having a family of her own. Uh, therefore, what, what I'm trying to say is, is that it appears that Orpah makes a choice that most of us can really relate to, that we can really understand. 
Therefore, it is somewhat surprising that Chazal so sharply criticized Orpah for her actions. Now, actually, the context of their criticism is what we call a Midrash Shemot, which is an attempt to explain someone's name etymologically, um, emerging with some sort of theological conclusion about this person or some sort of attempt to explain the essence of the person's personality. Chazal do this very frequently. This, The ability to do this is, of course, derived directly from the Tanakh, who do this as well, right? When the, when uh, certain characters are named in Tanakh, their name is also given an explanation. Uh, there's an idea behind the name. And Chazal do this as well, and they explain many of the names in Megillat Rud as well, um, offering some sort of explanation that is meant to refract, meant to explain the character that we're speaking of. Now, uh, in a famous Midrash, the Midrash asks, Lama Nikrashma Orpa, why is her name Orpa? Uh, and this is a Midrash in Rut Rabbah. Shahafcha Oref Lachamuta, because she turned her back on her mother-in-law. Lahafoch Oref in Tanakh, we know this from the seventh chapter in Sefer Yoshua, um, implies a certain cowardly act in that particular context. It's Am Yisrael running away from the enemy, right, in Yoshua Perak Zion. And in this case, there seems to be, certainly you would read in Chazal's words, some measure of criticism against Orpah for turning her back on her mother-in-law, spinning around and going home, going straight back to Moab. Now, there is more than a hint of criticism in these words of Chazal. However, it's not a bad etymology as etymologies go. We certainly are familiar with etymologies that uh, much more pervert the actual word in order to arrive at a meeting, at a meaning. Take, for example, the etymology of the name Eli Melech. Eli Melech, which really means my God is king. Chazal say he's called Eli Melech because he used to say Eli Tavo Hamachut. To me shall come the kingship. This is certainly a corruption of the name Eli Melech. So here Chazal, in explaining the name Orpah, actually offer a very reasonable etymology for the name Orpah. Orpah does in fact seem to be closely related to the word Oref, which is the nape of the neck, the back of the neck, like we have Egla Arufa, uh, a, a, a calf that we break its neck in Sefer Devarim, the back of the neck. Um, and in fact, I would say that the etymology is also an adequate etymology for explaining what it is that Orpah did, what characterizes Orpah. Now, while I, I'm a little bit hesitant to offer this kind of criticism against Orpah, as I mentioned previously, I think certainly Orpah's actions are, are understandable, if not perfectly justified. At the same time, as a foil to Root, when we compare Orpah to Root, we certainly are going to contrast what Root did, which is to cleave to her mother-in-law and to agree to stick with her, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the condition, with what Orpah did, which is to turn her back on her mother-in-law. Um, on the other hand, uh, I think that, in fact, this Midrash, uh, while it's a little bit critical of Orpah, it, it serves Chazal's purposes. Um, and, and therefore, I think that I would conclude with respect to this Midrash that this is a fair, if a bit overly critical, portrayal of Orpah. 
It is therefore particularly surprising and also problematic that the Gemara in Sota asks the same question with respect to the etymology of Orpah's name and offers a very different answer, one which seems to have much less basis in the story itself and perhaps even also in terms of the etymology of the name. And the Gemara in Sota, Andaf Membet Amudbet, Sota 42b, asks the question why she is called Orpah and a loose explanation of this Midrash basically describes Orpah as a licentious, wanton, promiscuous woman. Why is she called Orpah? Because she was terribly promiscuous and she committed all sorts of indecent sexual acts. And this comment is really very, very difficult. I mean, there's no hint in the Megillah of Orpah's promiscuity. She does nothing in the story to warrant these kinds of accusations. And it must be pointed out that it's not as though the Midrash had to search for for a reasonable etymology to suit her name and character. There is a highly suitable etymological explanation there for the taking, and so we must ask the obvious question on Chazal's comment. Why offer this scathing critique of Orpah's character? Why explain her name, her name which is of course an indication of her essence, in such a uh, an unflattering and critical manner which doesn't seem to reflect the Orpah that we meet anywhere in the text. And I, I want to add to this that this is in fact the image of Orpah which emerges throughout the Midrashim which address her character. I'm not going to read through all of these Midrashim which describe Orpah's deviant sexual behavior in great detail but to suffice it to say that these descriptions do appear in several places in rabbinic literature including the Gemara, the Midrashim and the Zohar on root, so that this emerges as sort of a theme of the way in which Chazal choose to perceive Orpah. Now, I, I, I do think that it is noteworthy that Chazal portray Ruth in the exact opposite manner of both of these Midrashic criticisms of Orpah. I think that if we ask any school child who is Ruth, what her what are her um, most defining characteristics, anyone would say or you would imagine that the most obvious answer would be both her kindness and her modesty. And this is what we find over and over in Chazal. And certainly Ruth, who stays with Naomi and who we spoke about in this context in our first shiur, is represented by Chazal and the text itself as the paradigm of kindness. Her first act of kindness, staying with Naomi, despite the fact that she has no future with Naomi, is certainly here contrasted with Orpah's seeming cruelty or indifference to Naomi's plight as she returns to Moab. However, the portrayal of Ruth as a modest character which is found all over Chazal, which is a very well-known representation of Ruth. In fact, it appears in all sorts of artistic renditions throughout the centuries, this description of Ruth bending down modestly to pick up the sheaves of wheat in the field, is in fact not necessarily borne out by the shot itself. So what we have here, what we seem to have here, is a conscious contrived contrast that is created between Root and Orpah by Chazal. If Root is the epitome of the modest woman in, in Chazal, Orpah is the epi- epitome of the promiscuous woman, of the immodest woman in Chazal. And here what I think we have 
seen begin to emerge is an interesting ph- phenomenon um, that Chazal, that we see in Chazal and Chazal's um, uh, examination of these two women. Chazal seemed to portray Ruth and Orpah as diametrical opposites. And this despite the fact that throughout the first parak they seem to work in tandem, they seem to function in tandem. According to Chazal, Ruth is the epitome of kindness and modesty. Orpah is the epitome of cruelty and promiscuity. And my question that I want to begin with, and from here we're going to turn to Breshit, is why do Chazal do this? What is their objective in maintaining this extra textual position? Now again, I'm coming from the, um, the, the assumption that Chazal are not simply trying to add random information to our, uh, to our understanding of Migilat Rut, but rather they have here a very deliberate theological idea that they're trying to develop and that is going to lend itself to a deeper, more profound understanding of the Megillah itself. In fact, in order to understand this story, and, and especially Chazal's reading of this, of this story, I think we have to go back to the story of Avraham and Lot. Lot, of course, being the eventual father of Moab, the father of Ruth and Orpah, and Avram, of course, being the father of the Jewish nation. Um, at the beginning of the story, Lot and Avram work together. They're united in purpose. They're united in action. They come to the land of Canaan together. Um, in fact, the Radak comments that the plural of the uh, nefesh asher Asher Asu Bicharan is not, as Rashi says, an indication of a joint effort between uh, Avram and Sarah, but rather a joint effort between Avram and Lot. The Radak also points out the fact that Lot leaves his father to accompany his uncle Avraham, suggests that he particularly wants to be with Avram because, according to the Radak, Lot has learned belief in God from Avram. Lot and Avram remain together even when Avram goes to Egypt during the famine, and then they return to the land of Canaan together. And this, of course, as we know, is where the idyllic relation comes to an abrupt halt. That's when their uh, shepherds begin to to have some sort of conflict as a result of the sheep. And Avram says to Lot, let's separate one from from the other, Kianashim Achim Anachnu, he says, He parade na me alai, separate yourself from before me. And he gives Lot two options, go to the right or go to the left. And that, of course, seems to be north and south. Now, Lot picks up his eyes and chooses not to go to the right nor to the left, but rather to go straight ahead to the Kikar Yardain, where Stom and Amorah are, Kigan Hashem Ke'eretz Yisrael, a place of great fertility, a place where presumably he can easily take his sheep and have them pasture there. And we're told at the end of this story, Vayiparadu ish me'al Achiv and each and the men separated one from the other. Now, Lot's separation from Avraham and his decision to make his home in stone has been treated differently by different mefarshim. Some of the midrashim, cited also by Rashi, regard Lot's move as an indication of his sinful persona. They maintain that he chose to go there because he was looking to live amongst inhabitants who engage in lewd behavior. Right? What is it that we know about Anshe Stom? We know that Anshe Stom Raim v'chataim lahashem meod. The people of Stom are very evil, very sinful before God. Now, what we're going to see is that they are evil and sinful. 
in two primary areas. One is bein adam lechavero. They are not kind one to the other, or certainly not to outsiders. They're not interested in hosting. They're not interested in gemilut chasadim. In other words, what we're going to see is they are the direct antithesis of Avraham in that regard. The other thing that we're going to see is in terms of giloy arayot, in terms of promiscuous, wanton, immoral behavior. These are the two areas in which uh, stone seems to uh, really be particularly sinful. Um, and the question remains why or how we're meant to view Lot as a result of him having gone there. As I noted, Rashi, citing some of the Midrashim, regard this as an indication of Lot's poor character. However, the Radak regards Lot positively throughout the story. In fact, he says that the reason that Lot was not afraid to move to this place is because he was that he was so strong in his faith and in his piety, that he knew he wasn't going to learn from their deeds. And in fact, as we look through the continuation of the story, what we see is really Lot's commitment to to hosting the strangers in an extraordinarily similar manner as Avraham does in the parak before, right? And Avraham in the parak in Parak uh, Yudchet in the in uh, chapter eighteen, the beginning of chapter eighteen, hosts these uh, what he doesn't know are angels with a tremendous amount of energy and excitement and a very positive feeling about. Avraham's Gmilut Chasadim. In the very next chapter, actually, uh, uh, interestingly, the same guests arrive in Stome, and we find Lot sitting at the entrance to the gate of, of Stome, just as Avram was sitting in the entrance uh, of his tent, presumably waiting for guests. He sees them, he greets them, he bows low to them, just as Avram did. He refers to himself as his servant and to them as master, just as Avram did. He offers them to wash their feet and gives them food and urges them to stay in his home, just as Avram did. And really, despite the fact that there are some Midrashim that focus on the differences between these stories. Perhaps the Sforno uh, mentions some differences between these stories. Both Rashi and the Radak cite the Midrash about how much Lot learned how to treat a guest from his uncle, from Avram. The Ramban also mentions Lot's behavior with approval. And indeed, I think we'd be hard-pressed not to note the similarities between Avram and Lot in these stories, which undoubtedly overwhelm the differences. The proximity of these stories, along with the fact that Avram and Lot both host the very same people, only reinforces our sense that Lot and Avram are far more similar than they are different. Lot really does seem to have learned his lessons from Avram. He is kind, he is generous, and also he is concerned about about morality. He's concerned particularly about sexual morality. In fact, when the people of Stone surround his house and ask to rape his guests, Lot is very disturbed, and despite the fact that in the end his solution is not particularly a positive solution, throwing his daughters out to the guests doesn't seem to be the best solution of all, but I think that the, the sense is, is that Lot is horrified by the thought of allowing the people of Stone to sodomize his guests. Um, so I think that what we have to ask ourselves at the end of this, uh, this story is, is Lot's decision to move to Stone 
acceptable? Is it problematic? Does it reflect badly on Lot, especially considering the fact that, in fact, he seems to really maintain his decency and goodness, despite the fact that he's living among people who are not decent or good? And in both of the areas in which the people of Stome uh, really manifest their sinfulness, Lot is determined to maintain his goodness. Are there, in fact, any repercussions to Lot's original decision to go live in stone? And in the final analysis, do we view this move as did Radak when he said that Lot's emuna will win out in this story? I think that we do have to note that despite the Torah's portrayal of Lot's personal integrity, the Torah doesn't let Lot off that easily. Lot's decision to live amongst the people of Stone, rather, you know, not keep himself separate, as does Avram. Avram is deliberately and consciously maintaining his separateness and distinctness from the, from the inhabitants of Canaan. He continuously chooses not to live amongst them. As soon as the Pasuk tells us that the Canaanite and the Perizzite is in the land, we're immediately told that Avram moves away. Avram wants to be Ger Vitoshav Anochi Imachem. He wants to be a stranger amongst the people of Canaan. He wants to remain separate and distinct from the inhabitants of Canaan, presumably because he doesn't want to absorb any of their sinful behavior or their cultural um, or their 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 culture, um, even unconsciously. Um, now, Lot's decision, as opposed to Avram's decision his choice to become a member of their society, ultimately, I believe in the story, means that his fate and even his future is inexorably tied into that of the evil people of Stone. He becomes one of them, their fate becomes his. And before even the story of the destruction of Stone, we already see this when in the story immediately following Lot and Avram's separation, Lot, we, t- we have a story of Lot's capture during a war between the people of Stome and, and some foreign kings. This is in Paracudalid. And this story seems intent on showing us that Lot is going to be a victim of his surroundings, that Lot is subject to the whims and decisions of the inhabitants of his immediate vicinity, people who are not exactly known for making good choices. The Torah here, I think, is not suggesting um, that Lot is bad, but at the same time, Lot is not exactly an innocent victim. His fate here is going to be a direct result of the choice that he made of his own volition. And in fact, I would like here to note what are the consequences, what the consequences are of Lot's decision. What kind of price does he pay personally and how does it impact on his descendants? Actually, despite the fact that Lot wants to live a life of integrity in stone, he does pay a heavy price for his choice to live amongst these people. And that will eventually and inevitably lead to his downfall both in terms of Gemilut Chasadim, in terms of his ability to be kind, and in terms of Giloya Rayot, in terms of his ability to maintain sexual purity and sexual morality, Lot is going to fail, and not because he himself is bad, but because he lives in stone. Because Lot lives in stone, even his well-intentioned act of kindness is sullied. The whole story of Lot hosting the the angels or the men turns from an act of kindness into a, a 
catastrophe, a story filled with horror, right? Lot searching for a solution, for a way out of a very bad situation after the people of the city surround his home, distorts his righteousness, which he has displayed towards these men by offering to toss his daughters to the townspeople as a replacement for his guests. In doing so, perhaps he made a choice of what he considered to be the lesser of two evils here, but he perverts the very trait of kindness which motivated him to save these men. And at the end of the story, it seems to me that the Torah is trying to make it clear that it doesn't matter how righteous Lot is personally or how many of Avram's traits he has preserved in his personality, his choice to be in a corrupt and perverse environment ultimately will result in a situation in which he will be forced to be like them, to act like them, even against his will, even not by choice. And ultimately, this is the story of Lot's descendants. What do we know about Ammon and Moab? They are branded with the personality trait of cruel. This ultimately becomes a halachic assumption. This is why these nations are prohibited from marrying into the Jewish nation. Al-Devar asher lo kidmu etchem belechem uvemayim bederech because they ultimately don't give bread and water when we are walking back from Egypt. In other words, Lot's descendants become the diametrical opposite of generous hosts, of Avraham, of who Lot had wanted to be. Despite Lot's own resolution to maintain his goodness, his choice to live in stone means that his descendants become the spiritual heirs of stone. And that's in fact who Ammon and Moab are. The second failure of Lot, which is a direct result of his bad choice, um, is it ultimately manifests itself, of course, in the area of sexual morality. As a result of the destruction of Stone, Lot finds himself alone with his daughters in the aftermath of the destruction of the cities. They uh, believe that they are the last ones left in the world, and therefore they decide to trick their father into committing incest with them, not because they're evil, not because they're perverse or Perhaps because, uh, or you know, that certainly is not clear. Certainly, Chazal do not think that they are evil or perverse, but rather because they sincerely believe that the human race has been destroyed and that they must repopulate the world. Once again, what we see is that Lot and his family are the victims of circumstances that don't necessarily reflect on their own personal virtue, but are instead the result of one fateful bad choice that Lot made years earlier, and that is, of course, the choice to live in stone. It's a choice that inevitably impacts upon his family. It's a choice that inevitably turns him uh, from, or takes him from a place in which he's able to maintain his purity to a place where, which results basically in incest. And once again, at the end of the story, what do we know about Moab? What do we know about the, uh, the ultimate end of the story? The daughters of Moab, the descendants of Lot, who are obviously the product of an incestuous relationship of Lot and his daughters, are also known for their promiscuity. They are portrayed as the seducers of Am Yisrael in B'midbar Perakafhei. The Torah wants us to know that it makes no difference if Lot himself is pure and righteous and even outraged by the prospect of the people of Stone raping his guests. This is besides the point because the end result speaks for itself. Lot's choice of where to live means that Inevitably, by osmosis, this kind of culture penetrates not necessarily into Lot himself, but certainly into Lot's descendants, and even Lot's own personal experience is sullied as a result of his choice. To summarize what we've said so far, I've tried to show that Lot's choice to integrate into the 
into the people of Stoman Amora result in his total assimilation uh, in the total assimilation of his descendants into the immoral culture of Stoman Amora of the Canaanites in general. This process begins even in Lot's own lifetime and affects his own behavior as well, no matter how well-intentioned it may be. And this, of course, is especially true with respect to the two traits of Chesed and Kedusha. Now, these traits are so integral to the definition of the Jewish nation that Lot, by virtue of his choice, becomes the paradigm of the diametrical opposite of Avram, to the point that his descendants are banned from entering our community. Now, before we return to the story of Rut and Orpah, I'd like to discuss a little bit the background of the story of Rut and Orpah, of the story of Mikilat Rut, and that is, of course, Sefer Shoftim. We spoke about this a little bit last time. Um, the period of the Book of Judges is a terrible period in Am Yisrael's history. Um, things begin to go seriously awry in the uh, beginning with the very first chapter of the Book of Judges and deteriorates until, really, they get to a point of the story of Pelegish Begiv'ah, which is the story or the rec- or, or a repeat of the story, some sort of imitation of the story of Stom Va'amorah. What happens in the story of Pelegish Begiv'ah? Well, there's a man and he's traveling with his Pelegish, with his concubine, and he gets to the city of Giv'ah, which is a city in the tribe of Benjamin. When he gets there, nobody offers him to come into his house for the night. Nobody offers to host him. And finally, there's this old man, and he's a foreigner. He's really an Ish Ephraim. He's not from from this place in Giva'ah, so I suppose he knows what it is to be a guest in Giva'ah. And he offers to take this this uh, wandering man into his home. And, he, and the wandering man says to him, you know, I have food. I don't even have to take food from you. In other words, the assumption is is that people no longer want to give. People don't want to give food. And of course, the end of the story is truly horrific. I would, I would even claim that this is perhaps the most horrifying story in all of Tanakh, because at some point during the night, the people of the town of Giva surround the house of the host and demand to rape this man who uh, who he has hosted for the night. And of course, the, the, the host refuses to throw out his guest. Instead, he says, here, take his pilagesh, and he throws out his concubine, and the men rape her all night. Now, this ultimately generates a civil war, which is how Sefer Shoftim ends. I want to claim, of course, is that Sefer Shoftim brings us to a point where Am Yisrael becomes like Stoman Amorah. That is the end of Sefer Shoftim. How does this happen? Well, what I want to suggest is that this happens, uh, it begins in Shoftim Perak Aleph. Shoftim Perak Aleph, the very first chapter of Sefer Shoftim, tells us that instead of conquering the land and purging it of its sinful, deviant, uh, Canaanite inhabitants, in order to set up a new society based on the distinctive values of the Jewish nation, that is, kindness and sexual morality, the Sefer Shoftim opens by telling us that the Jewish nation fails to complete the conquest of the land, instead leaving some of the Canaanite people in the land simply because they are too uh, uncommitted or perhaps lazy to properly 
purge the land of its of its Canaanite culture. And as a result, what we see in Sefer Shoftim is that the Jewish nation is living amongst the Canaanites, are beginning to assimilate into the Canaanite culture, beginning to worship their idols, generally forgetting their God, and ultimately making the same choice as Lot. They think they can preserve their personal piety. They think that they can preserve their personal sexual morality, their personal kindness. But what we see throughout the story of Sefer Shoftim is how religious corruption begins to uh, permeate, how society begins to break off into separate tribal units, how both from a societal perspective and from a religious perspective, there's a degeneration as the Canaanite culture permeates in more and more deeply into the Jewish nation. For example, in the time of Gideon, the people of Sukkot and Penuel refused to give food to the army of Gideon. This reminds us very strongly of Stom and Amorah. Al-Devar asher lo kidmu etchem belechem uvemayim b'derech b'tzitchem mitzrayim. They didn't give us food and water. And of course, this story culminates in the story of the Pelegesh from Giv'ah, which is in fact the story of Stom and Amorah. So what has happened to the Jewish people during the period of the judges is that they have strayed from the path of Avraham and they have pursued the path of Lot. What I want to conclude by suggesting is that Migilat Rut takes place during this period. Nevertheless, it records not just a totally different scenario, um, which we spoke about in the last Shiur, but rather Migilat but even more than that, what I want to say is, is that Migilat Rut provides us with the solution to the disastrous situation in the book of of Shoftim by giving us um, a new direction, by enabling us, by teaching us how to leave the path of Lot and return to the path of Avraham. Who, in fact, teaches us that? Well, that is Root, right? Um, Root and Orpah, at the very beginning of the book, are faced with a similar choice as Lot and Avraham. This is the choice between the path of, of, of separate values, the path of Avraham, and the path of assimilating values, the path of Lot. Only this time the choice takes place in the opposite direction. Root and Orpah are Moavite women who are descendants of Lot who are given the choice to return, to return to the value system of Avraham, to return to choose a new path. Um, in the beginning of the story, of course, Root are mirror images and do the same thing. Root and Orpah are mirror images and do the same thing. But by the end of Parak Aleph and what we're told um, in this interesting pasuk, in the end of Perak Aleph, is Vatashov Naomi, and Naomi returned. Virut Chalata Ima Hashava Moav. Root, her daughter-in-law, is with her, and she has returned from Stemoav. Now, the key word in Perak Aleph is Lashuv, is to return, and yet. Root hasn't returned. Root has left the place of her origins. Unless we understand this entire story as being about some sort of historic return, some sort of closing of the circle that begins with the story of uh, Lot and Avraham, of Lot's separation from Avraham, and ends with this moment here in Root Perak Aleph, in which Root and Orpah are given a choice. And it's not just a choice between, do you want to go back to Moab and start a family, or do you 
want to come with me and be nice to me, but rather it's about righting the historical wrong that was, that was begun by Lot in choosing to go off in a path of, of assimilation into an immoral culture. And there are several here, I w- I'm going to note two, uh, linguistic References, which seems to seem to bear out this theory. Um, number one is in Ruth's great speech to her mother-in-law. She uses a very interesting word. She takes here an oath, an oath in the name of God, that she is going to cleave to Naomi. We learn from this that a convert has to take an oath in the name of God. She says, I swear by God, so shall God do to me, and so shall he continue to do. Ki hamavet yafrid beni because only death will separate between us. Now the fact that that word appeared twice in describing Lot and Avraham's separation one from the other, he pared na me'alai, vayipardu ish me'al achiv. There the word appears twice in order to indicate the separation. Here Ruth says, nothing else will separate us ever again. And of course Boaz, in describing that which Ruth did, which was so impressive, describes her as an Avraham-like figure. He says in Parakbet, "Who gave who godly It has surely been told to me everything that you did with for your mother-in-law. After your husband died, listen to the next words. You left your father and your mother and the house and the and the land of your birth. That reminds us of that reminds us of God's first words to Avraham. There seems to be little doubt that Root is making a conscious choice to leave Moab and return to the path of Avraham. Now, this I think really explains to us several things. The first thing that explains to us is why the Midrash is excessively harsh with Orpah in, um, in, in offering insights into her character. Orpah eventually returns to the path of her ancestor Lot, and yet she was given a choice to leave it. And so her choice here is consequential and will have negative results. And like Lot, what Chazal seemed to be saying here is that like Lot, her descendants will be both cruel and immoral. Even if she herself is not that here in this parak, we know from past events that even if she herself thinks that she can maintain her personal morality, her personal kindness, ultimately her choice will lead to a very good, a very different direction. Her choice to return to a depraved surroundings, a society like Moab, the spiritual heir of Stoman and Amorah, a society steeped in cruelty and immorality, ultimately determines her future. That's what Chazal are trying to say. By portraying Orpah as cruel and promiscuous, what they're telling us is, is that Orpah's choice, like her forefather's, like her forefather Lot's choice, has far-reaching ramifications. There's no doubt that she, or at the very least her future, will uh, turn her into the kind of woman that Chazal are depicting here in their representation of Orpah. And of course, Root, makes the exact opposite choice. And so even if she herself is not necessarily portrayed as the epitome of modesty, there is no doubt that Ruth's future is steeped in kindness and steeped in the Jewish norms of modesty. And this is all a result of her choice. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, what I really want to say in this year is that the result of Ruth's brave and and determined choice is that she brings these values back 
to the Jewish people. She single-handedly can turn around the period of Sefer Shoftim. She makes a choice to leave the path of Lot and turn to the modesty, the separateness, the integrity, the kindness of the values of Avram Avinu. And in doing so, Root becomes the vehicle for the nation's return to the path of Avram, from which they strayed during the period of the judges. She can teach the Jewish nation by virtue of her own personal choice, by being a personal example and a role model for the Jewish nation at the time of the judges, how to get back to our original path, which seems to me to be the real problem of Sefer Shoftim. We have strayed from the path of Avram, and we have returned, uh, and we have gone to the path of Lot, which has led us to become like and there seems to be no future for the Jewish people at the end of Sefer Shoftim. The turnaround is Root, who makes the opposite choice, who leaves the path of Lot and goes back to the path of Avram. Thank you.